Welcome to Make Your Move, the podcast designed to help you get on the property ladder and then figure out what the hell you're doing once you're on there. From deposits to mortgages, surveys to moving day, we can help. Make Your Move is brought to you by Really Moving, the price comparison site for moving home services. Let's get into our episode. And welcome to our first mini bonus episode with Really Moving's resident data expert, Mr. Numbers, Zach Griffin. In this short and sweet breakdown, Zach shares some data with us about what first-time buyers are doing at the moment, what types of properties they're buying, where they're going, and where are the opportunities for you as a first-time buyer. He also eloquently breaks down what's going on with interest and inflation at the moment and how that could impact the first-time buyer's plan to get onto the ladder. We hope you enjoy it as much as we did. Let's jump in. Zach, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. We are going to pick your brain on some of the data that you've seen at Really Moving. Uh, we collect a lot of data. Would you like to explain roughly where that data comes from? Yeah. So essentially, it comes from people using the forms on our website. So mostly it comes from people who are filling out a conveyancing form, getting prices for conveyancing, which depends on all sorts of the details of what sort of purchase you're doing, how many bedrooms there are, the property size, whether you're a first-time buyer or not, or whether you're using shared ownership or anything like that. So as part of collecting that data to get the right quotes for users, then we also end up with a decent chunk of data on the housing market and sort of what's happening at any point in time. Perfect. So yes, we've had a little look at some of the first-time buyer data. There's some interesting stuff going on. Is there anything that jumped out for you particularly that you think is interesting? Yeah, I thought one of the most interesting things was sort of how... Uh, and this is sort of linked into something that various people have been talking about recently about our sort of our first time buyers getting older, and that sort of the most common uh, sort of property sizes that first time buyers are buying a, a mixture of two beds and three beds both make up about sort of forty percent each of the properties that first time buyers are buying, which sort of leans into the idea that people are getting older, buying when they're sort of having their kids and need that extra bedroom space and also have the sort of capacity to be able to afford a three-bed property. Uh, I think that was probably the, the most surprising bit for me from looking at these figures in terms of things that I really wasn't expecting to notice because it's sort of one of those things that you hear people talk about after some buyers are getting older and you wonder how much of that is just sort of okay they've got older but on average by half a year or something and how much of a difference does that really make to the properties they're buying but yeah seeing it that sort of noticeably was quite interesting. Is it different regionally? Is it dramatically different regionally or do we know that? Basically just wondering if it's starkly different or even slightly different when it comes to regions. So say the north, I would guess, would be a younger age point for first-time buyers than say the southeast. It's something that's a bit tricky to tell because where we're using sort of bedroom size is a bit of a proxy for um, age here. And in London, sort of just the nature of the property market in London is that there are going to be more one beds and two beds about in a large city than when you're looking at a region such as, say, the northeast, where while there are cities within it, there's also a large proportion that's sort of more suburban or rural, and you're going to get more sort of two to three bed properties. So in London, for example, about 25% of first-time buyers are buying one beds, and about half of them are buying two beds. So that's skewing more to the one to two beds rather than sort of two to three beds property size. Uh, whereas if you look at somewhere like, say, the Northeast, they're, uh, 50% of them are three bedroom and 10% of them are four bedroom. So that's just sort of a nature of sort of also the different average property prices for a given property size by region that you're, you're getting more bang for your buck 
if you're going up north. So even if you're sort of buying it about the same age, you might be able to get a larger property. So it's difficult to sort of infer from just information about the properties that they're buying, what age people are when they're buying them, when you're looking at different locations like that. But it does suggest they're in a different time of life, potentially. Yeah, like you said, they're able to buy these things now that they're a little bit older. So actually, mm-hmm. whilst we look at not being able to get on the property ladder with a smaller property, because deposits are still so high, properties are still so highly priced, at some point it does even out. So we've been talking in some of the other podcasts about the ability to earn more later on as you grow, you know, your circumstances change, perhaps you buy with a partner and all those things impact the ability to buy, but are perhaps tied to being a little bit older. Yeah, one of the other things that I'd looked at was sort of buy location, uh, what proportion of people are first time buyers? So, or what proportion of property sold are sold to first time buyers? And the pattern there sort of tends to follow that large cities tend to have much higher proportions of first time buyers. So London sort of tops those charts with 65 to 70% of people buying properties being first time buyers. Where places like Manchester, Cardiff also quite high up on that list. So to give a bit of context, those sort of 65 to 70% of people being first time buyers, nationally about sort of 52, 53% of people are first time buyers or percentage of properties sold are sold to first-time buyers. And sort of more towards the middle of the list, you get more suburban places, places like Watford, places like Wolverhampton, Newport, Bradford, and then down at the bottom where there's far fewer first-time buyers are places that perhaps tend to have an older population, so sort of relatively well-to-do places like Harrogate or St Albans, and also sort of seaside towns, which generally tend to sort of skew to an older demographic where you'd, kind of, you'd expect there to be fewer first-time buyers there. That actually surprises me, because I would have thought that places like London and Manchester would just be too priced out for first-time buyers. But then obviously we're seeing people saving and buying when they have the ability to buy bigger properties, then maybe that's why. But yeah, I would have thought that London would just be like ridiculous first-time buyers and they should just go somewhere else. Also that sort of this is of people who can afford to buy then they're more likely to be first-time buyers, right? The, mm. This doesn't necessarily say that there's probably a, a much higher proportion of people who are renting older in those places, but of the people who are able to afford to buy in the larger cities is where they tend to be more of the, more of the people who are buying are first-time buyers. And are they, are they buying outright how popular are these uh, schemes like shared ownership and stuff in those places? So sort of as a general national trend, about sort of 10% of first-time buyers historically have used uh, shared ownership. There's been a bit of a drop in that since the end of Help to Buy. So for the last 12 months, it's around 8.5%, whereas the, the 10% figure I quoted was from the end of 2019 and had been relatively stable at around 10% for quite a while. How um, how many people would you say are buying new builds? And is there an increase? Maybe a drop since Help to Buy has stopped, but I suppose that's really recent. There has been sort of a drop off in the last few years in the percentage of first-time buyers that are buy new builds but that's been something that's been declining for a while so looking at sort of end of 2019 again which i'm going back to as sort of the the last regular point in the housing market before everything went mad for a few years back then it was around sort of 15 percent of first-time buyers were buying new builds uh, and it's been sort of slowly trending downwards since the start of the pandemic to sort of around 11 to 12 percent now well i'm wondering because there might be as well as the fact that maybe fewer properties are available, like building did stop during the pandemic. We've never been great at building enough as it is, which has an impact on pricing. Some of those properties might be being sold on, you know, they were new build when the first person bought them 
a couple of years ago and then they've been sold on. So they'll still be shared ownership or they could still be part of a different program, but it wouldn't register as new builds. So I guess it's worth considering that if you buy a five-year-old new build, it's not going to be considered a new build, technically. It's an almost new build. Yeah, nearly new build. <laughs> So it seems like, I don't say good news, but not bad news necessarily for first-time buyers that they're, okay, they're getting on the ladder later, but they are, those, you know, they are getting on the ladder. Were there any places that looked like they were decent opportunities for first-time buyers, perhaps regionally or um, anything you noticed that was good news, really? Yes. <laughs> Leading question. <laughs> Yeah, it's difficult to say, really, because sort of you you, you look at uh, property, just looking at the, the mix of what properties people are buying, it's difficult to uh, sort of induce from that information about, like, the individual situations of those people who are buying, right? Because sort of, we can talk about what does it mean generally for the market when the average first-time buyer is getting older. And as, the, as, as any individual first-time buyer, that only has a certain amount of applicability to you, right? Because there's... So everyone's circumstances are so varied. The idea of the typical first-time buyer doesn't actually apply to that many people. Most people are atypical in some respect in terms of how they are buying their first property. No, I think that's really fair. And we have spoken about, with Kate on last episode, about the fact that averages, average pricing can be very misleading and it can sort of put people off and make people feel a little bit rubbish, When, especially if you look across the UK uh, average first time buyer house price which would be nothing in certain areas it would be four times the amount and it just seems ridiculous to kind of generalize in that way yeah especially when you're looking at quite large areas that you're looking at an average for so i mean if i think about Watford, which is where i come from and where i live sort of the difference if you were to take the average property price in watford then it's kind of in inaccessibly expensive but that's sort of down to the split between property prices in say north watford and west watford and then even areas that aren't in Watford proper, so you go out to Garston, local town, or sort of local suburb of Watford, effectively. No offence very often, Garston. Then you're going to get uh, lower prices again than even in sort of North Watford. So looking at an average can be extremely deceptive in terms of getting an understanding of what the distribution is like in any one place. There's some quite famous, well, I say famous, famous in the world of statistics, examples of how you can sort of build data sets that have any average you want, but you can have that average by having everything the same price, two different prices that are split 50-50, a drawing of a dinosaur. No matter what it is, you can sort of engineer a set of data points to have the same average, even when they're representing very different data sets. So, yeah, I completely agree with Kate that sort of looking at average, it can be extremely deceptive. Yeah, okay, so... Just sort of more generally, um, in terms of understanding, we talk about the market, we talk about the data that we have versus, you know, there's lots of data sets that come through from banks and mortgage providers, and then from people like Rightmove, there's a lot of really interesting information out there. Just on understanding what the hell is going on in the property market at the moment with the changes recently in interest and inflation and all of that magical stuff that I think a lot of people don't really understand. Could you give a very, very idiot's guide to what is this and why is everyone worried about it? What could it mean for people who are renting or are trying to be first-time buyers? Sure. Um, so first of all, full disclosure, I'm not an economist. 
I, I didn't used to see an economic for that was a while ago now. So some of this I've, is going to be a bit rough and ready. And if it's wrong, don't get mad at me. <laughs> so, I mean, generally speaking, interest in terms of the sort of the interest rate that a bank charges you for borrowing money on them is essentially a measure of the risk of them lending you money. In the sense that sort of if I was to lend each of the three of you 100 quid, and I reckoned that on average, one of the three of you is not going to pay me back, I would charge, say, a 50% interest rate, so that then the two people who do pay me back, pay me back 150 quid each, I still get my 300 quid back. So in a rough sense, that is what interest is. It's an, it's some measure of sort of how much risk the bank is taking on by lending you money. In terms of sort of how that links into the stories that you see about the Bank of England raising the sort of base rate of interest and how that links into inflation, it all gets quite complicated quite quickly. But the, sort of, the general story is that inflation is what you think it is. It's the prices of things going up. It's generally measured in terms of either the retail price index or the consumer price index. So that's some average basket of stuff that people need to buy. And they look at how much does the price of that go up or down over time on some set basket of what are the typical things that people need to buy. So some combination of food prices, fuel prices, other sort of household goods, TVs, electronic goods, any sort of stuff can go into that bucket of things that the inflation is a measure of. It's trying to say how much are prices increasing? In terms of the inflation that we've been seeing over the last sort of couple of years, it's been driven by sort of a combination of the end of COVID and sort of the supply chain struggles with getting enough stuff to shops for people to be able to buy in sort of a textbook supply and demand style as the supply of the thing is going down, but people still need to buy bread or computers or whatever, then the price of things goes up. And then the sort of the second factor has been the war in Ukraine, where that has had the various knock-ons that we've seen in terms of energy prices over the last sort of 15 months or so. So those are sort of the things that are driving inflation. And governments don't like it when there's big inflation because you can sort of end up in a bit of a spiral because when inflation's high, the money you're getting from your paycheck gets you less stuff. So you want a pay rise from your boss. But that then makes whatever goods your company that you work for produces, the cost of that goes up. So then prices go up even more. So bank, the Bank of England then wants to try and pull some sort of lever to put a break on inflation. And the base interest rate that the Bank of England sets for sort of how much it costs to borrow money from the Bank of England as another bank is one of the levers they can pull there, where they're essentially saying, okay, we set this base rate to be 5%. And by increasing that rate, sort of making it more expensive to get money, then it encourages people to spend less money, encourages people to save money because they're getting more interest on the money in their bank account. And by doing that, then they try to sort of slow that inflationary spiral. That was a long ramble. Did most of that make sense? <laughs> that actually, the first time money has made sense to me in my entire life. Yeah. Uh, it's, 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 like, it's like bread and circuses, but with computers. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't realise that it was all about stopping inflation. I just thought it was like <laughs> a... I mean, obviously, it is a consequence of inflation, but I didn't realise it was the banks trying to be like, whoa, stop inflating. Yeah. Yeah, because when, when inflation gets out of control, um, sort of the examples in our lifetimes, like you think of Venezuela a couple of years ago, or you think of Zimbabwe in sort of around 2009, 2010, uh, sort of the classic historical example is Germany post-World War One, 
where you're better off burning your money than using it to buy firewood because the the paper <laughs> of the money that you have is more valuable directly as fuel than it is as something you can exchange to actually buy anything because it's getting devalued so quickly. So that yeah, there are sort of very good reasons why governments and central banks as a sort of state institution want to reduce inflation. But it does mean tough times because the inherent thing they need to do to make it happen is make people have less money. And there's kind of no way around the fact that that is inherently sort of painful when you're the poor person on the, on the end of it rather than the person pulling the leaves in the Bank of England, right? So there's been a lot of chat this week about the impact on homeowners with that because there always is the minute mortgages, you know, interest, mortgages, homeowners feeling the pinch if they have to remortgage. So yeah, if you're not remortgaging and you're on a set tariff for a bit longer, that's fine. You're okay until that time comes when you've got a remortgage. There's a question, we tend to forget renters during this because obviously if your landlord is suddenly seeing a big jump up in what they have to pay on their mortgage, that is likely to be passed on to a renter. We were wondering, I mean, are there scenarios just mathematically where if you were going to buy, you were ready to buy and you're holding off because of the mortgage rates, but you're already renting, you might actually be better off buying. If you were going to buy and like stick at a mortgage rate for a few years compared to sort of being at the whims of your landlord who may be on a variable tariff or, or a sort of buy to let. We're just wondering if, I mean, I know that's not your expertise, but just mathematically or statistically, it's possible, right? Yeah, it's absolutely possible, sort of in, in the sense that this is um, kind of the, the core of the question there is about whether you're doing better off on a fixed rate or a variable rate tariff, right? In that if your landlord is on a variable tariff and that's increasing their um, mortgage repayments, if you're able to lock in a fixed rate that's going to be better than what you think their variable rate's going to go up to, then you would expect what the rent would be to increase relative to what you'd be paying out on a mortgage on the on the same sort of property. Obviously, you mentioned about um, first-time buyers buying more bigger properties because they're assuming we get they're buying when they're older. But is there a difference in how many first-time buyers are buying flats versus houses? Is there a trend towards one or the other? Um, so, in in terms of the breakdown at the moment, around sort of it's roughly split sort of 30% of first time buyers are buying flats about 30% are buying terrace houses about 30% are buying te- semi detached and then about 10% are buying detached which is sort of i imagine the people who are buying somewhere where the property prices are much lower to be able to afford a detached property as a um, first time buyer i don't think we have much historic data on that because this is something that on our quote forms we only started asking relatively recently um, the breakdown of the different property types. So I think the, the trend over time of that is a is one that we don't have a huge amount of data on currently, but hopefully will in the future. Are there any locations? So what's the average, if we were going to use a terrible average that we've agreed is pointless for in the UK, you know, an average first time buyer property, I can't remember what the official numbers say. It's, it's what is it, 250,000? So are there any locations that you've noticed where the average price is under that or is like it's quite a steal so uh, this kind of brings us back to what we were talking about earlier with the uh, the problem of averages right that um we talk about the the average first time buyer is buying a two hundred fifty thousand pound 
Drotsky say. Regionally, there's a huge variance, both above and below that. I mean, if you're looking in London, then you're talking about sort of around 470,000 is the average or mean price of a um, first-time buyer property. In southeast, you're talking sort of 320,000, again, above that average. But if you look up north, then it's considerably cheaper. I mean, in northwest of England, average price 202,000, northeast 148,000. Uh, these are looking at average price over the last 12 months from what people have been entering in our form. And similarly, outside of England, it's generally a bit cheaper than that. I mean, in Wales, the average price around 190,000. In Scotland, around 180,000. In Northern Ireland, around 170,000. So our national average is such a sort of misrepresentation of what's kind of everyone experiences because no one lives in the theoretical average place that you imagine everyone lives somewhere that is atypical in some way and so the the national average ends up being representative of no one kind of in a way so yeah looking at local data around where you live is always going to be much more helpful than the headline figures that you'll see quoted in the news about the average first-time buyer which is useful for sort of looking at how that changes over time like it's interesting to see what the average first-time buyer is doing now versus five years ago. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it's representative of you as someone who is uh, buying your first property. That, that's, the, that's the good news, right? Like, that's the good piece is that don't get too stressed about these averages because everyone's independent and individual. Considering those prices, I think it's mental that so many people are still moving to London, buying in London. Did we find out if there were more people not moving to London now than there were in the past, for instance, or like Manchester. What I was expecting, I think, was that people would be doing that less. Did I, are they, or did I miss that? It's something that's very, yeah, I totally get what you're saying about sort of what are kind of the changes in the flows of where people are moving from and to. That's something that we've tried to look into in the past that's really hard to measure because sort of as a, as a general trend, the average person lives where the most properties are, like, most people live in large cities, right? Just statistically speaking, because as a large city, it is a large number of people. And so when you try and look at the trends in changes to where people are moving, it's very difficult to sort of separate out the effect of just the the general story that the most people are moving to the places where there are the most properties for them to live in from sort of the, the seasonal trends that are much more difficult to discern. Sort of, I say seasonal, I mean more sort of um, the generational trends or long-term trends, that are, the way that they've changed over time. Yeah, and I think as well, we've always said, you know, people people want to live where they live. You know, it's very easy for someone in the comment section of whatever newspaper to say, well, you know, you should go up north if that's where it's affordable and you can get, you know, get a house. For most people, living a life is kind of, you know, one surrounded by their family and friends and their job and like the actual life that they've built is sort of more important. So thank you, Zach. I think it's been really great to kind of see a breakdown of the data and explain to us in a very simple and lovely manner that makes us not feel stupid. So thank you for that. That was a really great first bonus episode with Mr. Numbers, Zach Griffin. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. What did you take away 
from what Zach said, Jez. Well, I was really interested in what he said about interest rates, because interest rates for me have always been this big, scary thing, adult thing of like inflation and all that. And it's always been something that I've never really fully understood it. So to hear that it's it's all about inflation and combating inflation, it's uh, I always thought the banks just did it just to be mean. <laughs> but to know that they do it for actually more altruistic purposes, if you can, if you see it that way, of like trying to help the economy. That's very interesting. But it was obviously it doesn't always mean good news for everyone else when interest rates go up. But hopefully it means in the long run things will get better. Yeah, I think what I took from it, similar to our chat with Kate, was that averages are pretty useless when the difference based on location can be so stark. So when we look at deposit numbers being £60,000, that's not truly accurate. And um, you well, you shouldn't really fear it. It shouldn't be the, the thing that you have to save for. You shouldn't really go about your life expecting to need to save £60,000 for a deposit because in a lot of places, that's not the case. Similarly with you as well, the interest rates thing is, is quite positive. I, I like that when, when we end episodes and everything feels better. Yeah, it feels clearer <laughs> somehow. Yeah. I, also, I also find it very interesting about people like living, like first time by still moving to the big cities and stuff because I think a lot of, especially like with talk from Kate, the advice would be like, go somewhere cheaper, but people obviously don't want to do that and they don't have to do that it's interesting to see that as a trend you know whether it's good or bad that people are staying in the big cities that's another story but it's interesting to know that that's the case yeah that really surprised me i thought because everything seems quite doom and gloom people would be and especially because everyone would be moving to peterborough yeah and especially because people can work from home now there's not really yeah exactly a desperate need to live in london but people want to and they still are which is good Live in, live in Honolulu if you want. Yeah, why not? <laughs> <laughs> so thank you for listening to our first Mr. Numbers bonus episode. Next time on our regular episode four, we'll be talking to Brian Murphy from Mortgage Advice Bureau and we'll be dispelling mortgage myths. Hope to see you then. You've been listening to Make Your Move the podcast here to make moving simple. We hope you found this episode useful, but as always, everyone's situations are different. So make sure to do your own research before making your move. Make Your Move is brought to you by Really Moving, the price comparison site for moving home services. If you have any experiences or questions you'd like to share or ask that might be put on a later episode, please email us at podcast at See you on the next episode.